Hi, this is Claire Berlinski, the Cosmopolitan Globalist, and today we have Sheikh Katiri to talk to us about the protests in Iran, what they mean, what the prospects are for the future, and how to understand <laughs> what's coming out of Iran right now. Um, Shay, welcome to the podcast. I think we should begin by introducing you to our, our readers because they may not know anything about your history. So why don't you start from the beginning? You there? Hi, Claire. Thanks for having Hi. me. You're Hi. welcome. Uh, uh, I'm Shay Katiri, as you mentioned. I grew up in Iran. I uh, was 20, I was 19 years old when the Green Movement happened. And I was a sophomore in college in Tehran, although I grew up in the north in a city called Gorkhan, which is near the Turkmenistan border. And uh, what size I, city is that? Excuse me. How big a city is that? Uh, when I was growing up, the population was uh, around three to four hundred thousand people. Uh, it has grown since, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, why, I, why did you live there? What what uh, what's the story with your parents in that city and how you came to be? I uh, so. Both my grandparents have very, very, very deep roots there. Mm -hmm. And uh, my grandfather's, uh, uh, not too distant ancestors, moved there from, uh, from uh, one from Tehran and the other one from uh, a, an area called Sabotku, which is also where the Pahlavi dynasty is from. So. Right. Uh, uh, we have some distant relationship with the Pahlavis too from my father's side. So what kind of city is it? Is it culturally? Is it conservative? Is it? Uh... Oh, no. Uh, the So it's in northern Iran, which is uh, uh, just generally that's true of most places, uh, mm -hmm. but also Iran that uh, cities that are close to borders or uh, are more cosmopolitan because of the trade that's going right, on, right. especially cities near sea. And uh, so northern Iran and southern Iran are rather liberal because mm -hmm. of the uh, uh, foreigners that have come and uh, passed through. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, northern Iran was uh, used to be a stronghold, uh, but mo mostly nor north and northwest. But nevertheless a stronghold for uh, communists who many of them were attracted to communism through obviously the proximity to uh, the Soviet Union, but also uh, the social progressivism uh, against the Islamic orthodoxy. Uh, so this is before the revolution. Right, right. And no, Go on, sorry. No, uh, so yes, uh, my family were all part of that, those people who were attracted to communism. My father was quite a prominent communist and uh, I have always been the black sheep of my family being a crazy right-wing person. Let me let me just say how sorry I am about your father's loss. It's a terrible blow. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, he taught me many things and he, uh, he was the person who got me interested in politics and uh, as a communist father of a very right-wing son, he could not have been happier with my life choices. You I guess he would have been happier if I were a communist, but other than that. <laughs> you evoked him beautifully in, in the article you wrote for the Bulwark, and I recommend it to my readers. It's a beautiful, beautiful tribute to him. Um, 
so tell me how you became, well, first tell me a little bit about what your life was like growing up in Iran and, and so what it was like to be, I, I suppose just, you didn't speak English at the time, did you? No, I was uh, actually around the same time as the Green Movement protest, I picked up English. Uh, I uh, had very limited uh, knowledge of English language mm -hmm. and the very, very, very basics are taught uh, during uh, middle and high school, uh -huh. but uh, nothing that anyone really can use or, uh, or retain. Right. Uh, I was a crazy, I am a crazy soccer fan. Right. And uh, I love European soccer, especially Spanish soccer. And at the time, uh, uh, there was very limited uh, access to up to date uh, Spanish soccer news. So I had to rely on my very limited English knowledge and go on English language websites to know what's happening in Spanish soccer. And that uh, uh, led to some sort of self-teaching of English. And on top of that, I uh, around when I was 19, I watched a lot of American sitcoms and picked up English that way. And growing up in Iran, uh, everybody has somewhat a different story, obviously, depending on what kind of community you come from. Sure. I come from a very liberal family, uh, very, uh, or I, I guess very, I should say progressive family, which has strains of liberalism and illiberalism, uh, given the common Marxism of it. Uh, uh, my parents were political prisoners before I was born. And uh, my dad was a prominent Marxist. There was always an interest in politics in our home. And in fact, that was the dominant topic of discussion. Was it? Uh, and uh, culturally very open and liberal. Mm -hmm. And that was the community I came from, not just my family, but also friends and associates and uh, relatives that we had. Uh, not, nobody really was religious or those who were religious were kind of looked down on. Right. right. Uh, and they were all nominally religious, I should add. And uh, there was always a dichotomy that I lived with, which is a, an atheist home and an Islamist public. And navigating between that uh, uh, was interesting, I would say. It made for a bipolar life that I led. Uh, did, in... did your family practice any kind of public observance? Was there... A pressure to go to the mosque or or I uh, no not really uh, there there is no uh, coercive uh, way of or policy to send people to the mosque there is an incentive driven uh, uh, policy to send people to the mosque by having those connections that could uh, help you with your business or whatever which has absolutely and utterly failed to keep the mosques uh, filled. Uh, the mosques in Iran since the invasion of Arabs have not been emptier than they are today. Uh, if you want to erase religiosity from a society, make them practice it, I guess. Right, right. Um, so did you have a sense from your earliest childhood that you were living 
under a regime that you would <clears throat> rather see disappear or was that something that developed as you grew older? No, uh, it was always there. And, uh, and uh, the, I have not really changed in my views about the Islamic Republic. And that's because, uh, you know, those were the oppressors of my family, uh, people who had imprisoned my family and tortured my dad. So uh, that's what I grew up with. I, I, uh, my grandfather, my, my dad's father-in-law, uh, who spent two months in prison also. I recall that every time a, a, a Mullah cleric would appear on TV, he would point to him and say, oh, there's a thief on TV. And which was very uncomfortable for my dad because he always feared that I would actually pick that up and repeat it at school. Right. But right. that was that was the uh, family I grew up in. That uh, the the mullah repre represents the regime, and the regime is bad. Hence, the mullah is bad. Uh, and uh, there was always that sense that uh, this is a, a, a tyrannical regime. Uh, the only so. Uh, Around me, there were all kinds of people who shared similar social values, but not uh, overtly political like my family was. And uh, at the time, even when, like, until around the time that it was the, I left Iran, uh, there was still a hope among many people, if perhaps the majority of people, uh, probably the majority of people, that the regime was capable of reform, that uh, it the the tyranny could dissolve. Let's right. say it could uh, gradually reform, and uh, I was the minority who would say that no, it cannot. It has to go suddenly. And uh, what changed was a series of events uh, in the two twenty tens. I guess it begins with two thousand and nine. In fact, uh, the first. The first change is the regime's reaction to the green movement, that protests that began peacefully, uh, there were violent elements, obviously, but uh, mostly peaceful, to borrow a phrase, uh, were brutally cracked down on. Mm -hmm. And uh, that disillusioned the people about the potential for gradual uh, reform on top of adding that the protests were about gradual reform. It, it was about choosing the lesser of the two evils that the regime, that had gone through the filter of the regime right. and in an election that uh, was uh, uh, rigged in favor of the hardline candidate. So how can we seek reform if you don't even accept your own approved reformist candidate? Right, right. Four years later, uh, a reformist does win the election, uh, Rouhani, mm -hmm. Hassan Rouhani, and comes to power. Iran is under sanctions. Uh, the JCPOA is uh, reached and enacted in 2015. And Iran, sanctions are lifted, a reformist is in place, and, uh, uh, and a quarter of Iran's GDP is uh, unfrozen. Uh, suddenly the regime receives a hundred over a hundred million billion dollars in cash. In a way, that was the worst thing that could happen to the regime. I uh, objected 
to the JCPOA at the time. I still think that from a from an arms control point of view, that was a mistake. But what it did was it disarmed the regime of all excuses. There are no sanctions. You have a lot of cash, and there's a reformist in charge. Yet everything got worse. Uh, social marginal social liberties that existed before Ahmadinejad and were eroded when Ahmadinejad came to power did not come back under Rouhani. Uh, economic problems worsened and uh, all during your reformist administration, which proved to the people that uh, the problem is not uh, reformist or hardliners or sanctions, it's the entirety of the regime. Right. As I like to say, we in the United States have a permanent bureaucracy and uh, that is unelected and elected policymakers. Iran is the opposite. Uh, and people realize this, that the decision makers are permanent unelected and the bureaucracy is elected. The president is a bureaucrat, he's not a policymaker. Uh, and, uh, and that was a wake up call to the people that uh, there's no incremental gradual reform uh, to the extent that the regime reforms itself it's always for the worse. Uh, and that was the process uh, within, uh, I guess, uh, 10 years, less, fewer uh, years, I guess, less than 10 years, that people were disillusioned and turned violently against the regime. And you see the protests, sorry, go on. Why exactly is that regime so brutal? Why does it see that as in its interests? Oh, I, it is difficult to read the mind of uh, people who are inside the regime and are very closed in, disclosing anything mm -hmm. uh, uh, or reluctant to disclose anything, I should say. But if I can use my instincts, historical knowledge, and I guess some guessing, uh, I would say that uh, part of it is obvious, which is uh, if you have a mandate from God to enforce justice on earth, uh, then you become very violent. Uh, it's not like we haven't seen such totalitarian theocracies in history. They're all like this. Uh, I, I was writing something and I uh, allude to Spanish Inquisition, for instance. Uh, how is this different from uh, the totalitarianism of the Catholic Church? And you have that. There is... Uh, uh, material self-interest. The regime has corrupted, uh, has used corruption as a policy, let me say. Corruption is not a bug, it's a feature for the right. regime. Right. Because if you have a uh, corrupt and rich cohort, then they have an interest in preserving the regime. Part of the problem with the Soviet Union was that it was actually, it was corrupt, but not by standards that we have in China and Iran and Russia today. So the uh, Khrushchev 
lived in an apartment just like anybody else. It was not a palace to preserve. Uh, and that's not true of Iran. They have a lot of money to protect. On top of that, uh, they know how much they are hated by the people. They know what happened to uh, the establishment and the elite of the Shah's regime who didn't leave Iran. They were uh, all executed by the regime themselves, but with the support of the people. But also random cops were lynched after the revolution in 1979. If you had a gun before the revolution, you would be lynched because that you might have killed uh, a protester with that gun. And if you didn't, some other cop did, and we're going to avenge uh, in that, instead of killing that cop, we're going to kill you because you're just a cop like him. And they know that this is going to happen again. There's going to be a bloodbath uh, after the regime collapses and all of them are going to be killed. So there is a self-preservation problem here that we have. And last, uh, uh, it is also that people who join the ranks of the security forces, some of them are mercenaries and some others are not. Some others are actually selected because they are uncivilized uh, brutes, essentially. Right, right. Uh, and they are very careful to select people who uh, have a lust for blood. And, uh, and that's another reason. So you have the decision makers right. who have a reason to be violent and you have the executioners who, uh, uh, or not executioner, I guess. Well, uh, yes, executioners in fact, yeah. who uh, just have a nag for killing people, have, a, have enjoy it. Has there ever been any period in Iran where the where it's been decently governed? Uh, defined decently, I guess. Well, uh, without secret police, without torture, without executions on a wide scale in some sort of reasonably harmonious way where people don't feel themselves terribly oppressed? Can we go back a few millennia? <laughs> but jokes aside, in recent history, Yes, there were there were the Qajars who were very corrupt and ineffective and just terrible. And some of them governed that way because just because they were corrupt uh, uh, legacy princes who became kings and did not know how to be effective and had no interest in governing. Actually, they just wanted to go uh, as they call Farang, which is. Uh, abroad they wanted to go abroad uh, spend their money and uh, have sex with blonde women uh, and that's what all they did and uh, that came at the cost of the welfare of the people and uh, that led to the ousting of them in favor of paladies uh, but to answer your question yes and that has come with its own problem uh and then there was a small period uh, after World War II when Reza Shah is ousted and his son uh, succeeds him. There is a very, very, very uh, corrupt democracy, let's say, uh, 
uh, it's a rigged democracy. There are some democratic elements to it. There's voting, but it's not like our elections. Uh, Iranians were trying to learn how to do democracy at the time, and there was not a security apparatus like Sabak that was created after that. And that period existed until uh, Mossadegh, uh, undemocratically, uh, unlike what is remembered uh, here in the United States, undemocratically uh, comes to power and uh, rigs really bad, actually, rigs the elections to uh, solid solidify his uh, base, uh, his governing base, I guess. And then he's he engages in an unconstitutional uh, coup, essentially, against the king. And then uh, the events of the 1953, which of 1953, which I think the U.S. policy was right at the time to restore the Shah and get rid of Mossadegh. In fact, there is a a memorandum or uh, communique, I should say, from 1953 that was declassified a few years ago, along with hundreds of other documents from that time, that the State Department counselor in US embassy in Iran says, if Mossadegh remains in power, uh, all prospects of an Iranian democracy will be gone. This guy is a threat to, to a future democratic Iran. Uh, and so he's ousted. But the problem is that after that, uh, LBJ, uh, so excuse me, uh, uh, the Eisenhower administration has little interest in democratizing Iran. JFK had some interest, but wasn't forceful enough and died soon and LBJ has no interest. So Shah gets to do what he wants and becomes a tyrant. So that short period existed. And uh, I would say that the lack of attention uh, or lack of care by the United States allowed the worst political instincts of man to take over uh, the cause of democracy. So what, um, well, let's, let's do this chronologically a little bit. Let's go back to your story and I'll come back to this question. Where was the Green Revolution the first time you became politically involved? Uh, that's a difficult question. I wouldn't say that was the first time. Uh, uh, I did some uh, family friends who ran for city council, for instance. I, you know, I went and put uh, posters on uh, on on the walls on the street uh, uh, in the streets. I distributed some of them as a kid, mm-hmm. and I would say that was probably my first political involvement, but I was doing it really because I didn't understand anything about politics. It was very little. It, it was just family, friends that I was doing that for. Uh, as for political involvement, I would say that uh, in a conscious way, yes. And that was because first, that was the first time I was 19. That was the first time I, uh, had a serious, somewhat serious understanding of politics in addition to the first opportunity that they had. Uh, like I probably would have gotten involved in uh, 
a previous election, let's say, uh, whatever, uh, a, a, another a, a, at an earlier time. But that was also the first time that there was a large interest in politics uh, since 1997, uh, when uh, I, uh, when uh, Mohammed Khatami, the reformist candidates. Uh, wins the election. That was a huge moment in Iranian politics, but it was too little to take that seriously. And there was no real movement until uh, uh, 2009, which was my next, uh, which was my first opportunity to be seriously involved with politics. So what did you do? What, what was that like for you? I got involved as a volunteer with reformist Mir Hossein Musavi's campaign. Uh, not out of sincere love for the guy, but be, and not because I believe in gradual reform, but because uh, it would be, have been different, uh, we thought, if uh, he were president. Even the margins, I didn't think that the, that gradual reform could democratize Iran, but uh, still marginal differences could make life better domestically, we thought yeah. at the time. Uh, so I got involved with similar, uh, it, there's no phone banking in Iran, there were, their campaigning is different, and I did campaigning stuff, like uh, distributing posters or uh, things like that, uh, and then the movement happens, uh, excuse me, uh, the rigging of the election happens, and suddenly the green movement is born. Uh, there are calls to peaceful marching. I went to every single one of them. We were peaceful <laughs> initially. Uh, they were not. We were being shot at. Right. Uh, one of my fondest memories, and uh, I should give it, uh, give an anecdote about my mindset and the mindset, the paradigm of my friends at this moment, which is uh, we all were very, very, very anti-theism at the time. Uh, some of them remain, so I am not anymore. We resented religion, not Islam, not uh, theocracy, but the concept of religion. Right. Uh, and there was a mosque that was being used to randomly shoot at protesters. Mm -hmm. And it was on Nawab Street. And a street named after actually a man who assassinated one of Shah's prime ministers. So we, one of our, my friends and uh, I's uh, fondest memories is watching that mosque burn uh, because it was being used to shoot at the protesters and some people went and uh, just burned it. And that was actually quite a fascinating moment to me because I, never have imagined that people would engage in such a sacrilegious right. act. Uh, I thought that I was out of the mainstream. And Wait, hold on. The sacrilegious act being to shoot from the mosque or to burn it? No, to burn it. Right. To burn it. Right. Uh, and I never thought that people would do that. And... Mm -hmm. It was kind of amusing to me or interesting to me that, uh, you know, when uh, when you defile the mosque, people will 
uh, join you in defiling it. And that even a religious person uh, would defend himself against religion, I guess. If you're shooting from the mosque, I don't care that you're religious. I'll burn that mosque. Uh, right. It's not a mosque anymore. Right. Uh, so those were and just that, just like that. Uh, protests became more violent as they became more violent and more radical. Uh, they became smaller in size. Uh, but that was the beginning. There's a direct line from what happened then to where we have arrived now. Yeah. yeah. And in the meantime, you became a crazy right winger in your words. What what happened to your No, that that I was like that since the beginning. <laughs> I born a crazy uh, right winger. Yes, I was always a crazy right winger. That yeah. goes back to uh my upbringing, which is uh my dad and I uh would talk about politics. Mm-hmm. And I would go around calling myself a Marxist because I'm five, seven, whatever. And my dad is a Marxist, therefore I am a Marxist. And right. one day as a child, I remember that. Uh, it was eight or nine or something like that. He sat me down and said, like, you're not a Marxist. You don't even know what Marxism is about. <laughs> uh, and I say, okay, so tell me, daddy, what's Marxism? And in a kitty language, he explains Marxism. And I say that this makes no sense. This is stupid. Yeah. I'm not a Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I actually remember because the argument the, in kitty language, he explained that, oh, everybody has everything. I'm like, okay, so everybody has everything. Yes. Who makes things? Well, you make things. Why do I make things if I can't get anything? Why should I work? Well, community, and that's the right thing to do, and this, and this. I'm like, that, no. If I don't need to work, I'm not going to work, uh, which tells you that a nine-year-old uh, could be wiser than a doctor or a Marxist, as much as I love that, uh, my dad, and could understand the uh, concept of incentives. Uh, but... That was the end of my Marxism. And then uh, Iraq war happens and Afghanistan war happens uh, before the Iraq war. And President Bush starts talking about the value of exporting democracy to Iran. And then I start having arguments with my dad that, that you keep saying you want democracy. What's wrong with this guy? I love this guy. And uh, that, was, that was it. The Republican Party stands for muscular foreign policy in, and in the name of democracy therefore i'm a republican conservative republican and that obviously ended up not working out eventually for for me or the republican party but uh and how, it was how quite many other people do you think were moved to hear that were you very alone in thinking that well my dad was moved by that he was he eventually became just a european uh social democrat uh or democratic socialist based on what day of the week it was, uh, how left he could be, but he was quite a uh, George Orwell, Tony Blair, Christopher Hitchens, British left uh, right. by the end of his life. He, he was right, right. moved by that. He loved George W. Bush because of it. But uh, there were some people who were moved by it, I would say. It, it was not as many as we and I wish it would have been, but there were people, it was not inconsequential. And I recall during the 2009 protests, uh, one of the chants was, 
Obama either with them, the regime, or with us, because President Obama was silent on the protests uh, for reasons that we don't need to get into. But people were very upset about that. And you would hear people talk about that Bush would not have let this happen. Right. Uh, so there was a, uh, uh, a, a look to America as a savior and an anger toward uh, President Obama and a nostalgia for President Bush. Although I don't know if President Bush would have done anything. Maybe, maybe not, who knows, but Donald Trump didn't do anything uh, in 2017 and 2019. But that, that understanding that American foreign policy uh, could be a, a savior, uh, that messianic understanding of US foreign policy, let's say, right. that we resent, not we, but some Americans hate so much that we should not engage in definitely existed in Iran, that law for messianic US foreign policy. So when did you leave? I left in December 11, 2011. Uh, I was kicked out of college during the Green Movement and could not go back and left. And I lived in Hungary for two and a half years left Hungary and went to Arizona to restart college. I arrived in the United States on May 17, 2014, and uh, studied at Arizona State University. And then right after that, I went to do my graduate uh, work in strategic studies at Johns Hopkins University's uh, School of Advanced International Studies. And you were there on a student visa? Uh, initially, yes. I came here on student visa and for the past uh, several years, I've been uh, uh, impatiently waiting for my political asylum to be approved, which could yeah. happen any decade. I, I just read your painful, painful article about that, which is I mean, the situation that has resulted in your feeling that way is one of perennial frustration to me. And I wish it were a priority for any American politician to solve this. It's much more of a priority for them to have the problem. I won't tell you who, but uh, a, I believe a mutual friend who who's a very ad admirable person and uh, nothing short of a complete American patriot told me, uh, it pains me to say this to you, Shay, but if you could move to Canada tomorrow, you should do it. Uh, and this is a right-wing person who said that. He said that uh, that the prospects of immigration in the United States are terrible, and that has been a tragedy, I think. I mean, setting aside my personal case, I, for other reasons, I think that it is in U.S. interest uh, to have a romantic view of immigration. Oh, of course it is. Of course it is. I For re listeners who didn't read the article, Shea was describing the disillusionment and frustration of trying to become an American. And it's a story I've heard from so many people. It's, it, our immigration system has the, it, too many people who shouldn't become Americans are able to without any difficulty. And the people who really should aren't. Uh, you know, as, as much as I want to complain about the US immigration system, uh, at least vis-a-vis -vis Iran, uh, 
I think the worst offenders are the United Kingdom and Canada because uh, they call it merit-based and there is a lot of merit-based immigration, but also some, one of the merits is being wealthy, which means that many ordinary Iranians have their visas reject and people who are regime officials and quite senior regime officials uh, have Canadian citizenship. Yeah, of course, of course. There's actually, there's a, also like the United States is not different. Uh, it's just not as bad. There's a hilarious, hilarious video that it's a montage of uh, regime officials chanting death to America. And each person, uh, after each person says death to America, uh, then the video uh, pauses and says like, except like Missouri, uh, my son is studying there. Except New York, my daughter's there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. All right. So you're in America, and what what are you working on academically above all? Uh, my interest is out of anything uh, uh, transatlantic security and oh. NATO and uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, usually, it raises uh, many red flags when an Iranian becomes interested in nuclear weapons. But I guess I could get away with it. Uh, and that's what I did. I studied most of my work with uh, former Undersecretary of Defense, Eric Edelman, uh, who has taught me everything I know about foreign policy and uh, international relations. Well, he's very well known to those of us who spent time in Turkey, that's for sure. Yes, former ambassador. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's let's talk a little bit about the protests now. And I want to understand what they mean and what prospects they have for success and what it would look like plausibly if they were able to succeed. Uh, I don't think that they are likely to succeed in the way you and I would want it to succeed or them to succeed. Well, of course, uh, we want the regime to peacefully Yes. give up power and that's not going to happen that i understand or even three quarters peacefully is not going yeah. to be yet because yeah. as i said uh if you think that seizing power would mean uh that you're executed the day after you're not going to do it and unlike the shah who had uh the United States to go, although he was kicked out of it, uh, shamefully. Uh, where is Khamenei going to go? I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of people of regime people right now going to Caracas. Uh, but you know, that's that works if you're an IRGC officer, not really if you're uh, a mullah, a right. cleric, right? Right. Okay, can you go to Najaf? No, there is an American. Uh, uh, presence there where are you going to go they also don't have a place to go really and also like okay uh you want to uh why leave at all when you can just kill people and stay that's much better uh work in syria doesn't it uh it required a lot of assistance it almost didn't work uh Yes, but, well, two things on that. Uh, first, it became a civil war before yeah. the assistance arrived. 
Yeah. And two, uh, the assistance came from uh, partially Russia, but also mostly Iran. Yes. Yeah, so, so that... yeah. So, but Iran can use its own assistance the same way it gave it to uh, to the Syrians. Having said this, uh, there could be a civil war that the regime loses. I hope that the regime loses a civil war. But my point is that the regime is not going to go down without a fight. Right. It might lose a civil war, but it's going to turn it into a civil war. And in fact, it has communicated that with the people over the past 10 years, many, many times that we will turn Iran into Syria. And uh, that, and I uh, have been working on a draft about this, uh, but I'll give you some uh, uh, some uh, scoop of it mm -hmm. early on, which is Iranian political thought going back at least a millennium, if not more, uh, uh, believes in the dichotomy of power uh, or political structure, I should say. Uh, you can read that in Nizam al-Mulk's uh, book of politics. Mm -hmm. And you can even see it in Nazi Germany, in fact, that you should have two of everything. Iran has two intelligence uh, uh, organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there's Minister of Intelligence and there's the Parallel Intelligence Agency. It has two militaries. There is the IRGC and there is the Artesh. It has two police forces. It, there's the normal police and there's the Basij, which is right. within the IRGC. So you have two of everything. Why is it good? Because that makes your regime coup-proof. If one institution gives up power, the other one will rush to your rescue. Right, right. The Shah didn't have that. He only had the Artesh, and the Artesh gave up power. Uh, so there's always going to be one institution to rescue the regime. But also, that means that there is always a possibility that one of these institutions could uh, join the people. Right. Armories. Right. Arm the people. Right. So that is how you coup proof your uh, regime, but also that's how you make uh, civil war inevitable. Right. Right. Um, do you see any prospect of that happening? I don't see any way that it won't happen. Uh, the only way that it won't happen is with serious US investment in preventing that. And my biggest fear is that there are two schools of thought right now uh, in public discourse. One is uh, protests come and go right. in Iran. That's the norm. They come, they go. Actually, someone used the word, they disappoint us every time. And uh, this one is going to pass and it will come back and it will pass again. The other one is, uh, oh, this time is different. It's going to succeed. There is going to be a revolution. And as I like to say, revolutions succeed as uh, because a political decision is made by the ruling elite to give up power. When that decision is not made, protests, revolutions either die or devolve into a civil war. And we see no evidence that suggests to us the ruling elite is going to give up power. And uh, we see no evidence that the protesters are going to go away. We, they, they probably will go away this time and they will come back even worse. If you see since 2000 and 
since mid 2010s, you have seen sporadic protests uh, that every time uh, they become violent to some degree. And then you see mass protests. This is the third instance of mass protests and every single one of them has been more violent and larger than the previous one. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, yes, with serious US investment, it could be prevented or at least mitigated. But I again, my fear is that people are looking at the two options that are not likely to happen and completely missing out on the third scenario, which is the likeliest one, which is civil war. And by uh, not paying attention to it, I think the US government is making it likelier and likelier. What do you think the US government should be doing? Uh, you tell me what intelligence assets we have in Iran and that that response depends a lot on that. Uh, uh but i think ideally what we should be doing is we should be thinking about how to uh uh make clear that uh the regime will go away that if there is a civil war in iran as the regime very consciously uh is going to start if it has to. Mm -hmm. uh, if there's a civil war, unlike in Syria, we should make it clear we will support the protesters or the, the democratic forces, let's say, uh, and make sure that they will succeed. So your regime is going to go one way or the other. Now, do you want to live on our terms or on your own terms? Uh, We're so and, far from saying anything like that. Excuse me? We're so far from saying anything like yes, that. Yes, absolutely. No, that is the problem because uh, it's a. We are far from saying it because, just to borrow a phrase from 9 11, it's a lack of imagination that we cannot imagine a civil war in Iran. So why should we? Why shouldn't it? we be able to imagine that? It's not as if we haven't seen what's happened in the rest of the region. Well, because we're stupid. <laughs> I. I uh, there, uh, there's a quote by Jake Sullivan, who's not stupid at all. He's very smart. I met him. Uh, he's very smart. But there's a quote by him from 2021, mm -hmm. uh, maybe even 2020 during the transition, that we want to put, uh, we want to get back into the JCPOA and put Iran in a box meaning we want to ignore Iran after JCPOA. Right. Of Russia, what did they say after- Same uh, thing. we want to predict yeah. world stable relationship. Strategic, strategic stability is the phrase they used. And like, uh, that you're lacking, you're, you're denying agency to these people. Yes. Thinking that if you don't attend, pay attention to them, they cannot cause problem anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and also there's just an overreaction to the Iraq war that, uh, uh, whatever we do, we don't understand this region. Uh, we should just ignore it and let it let whatever happens there happens because we cannot make it better. And my answer to this is, uh, guys, Iraq war criticisms uh, worked out well initially. Then uh, they're hit the fan. Then uh, we figured it out. Whatever you think of it, the worst case scenario you can give me uh, as a humanitarian and geopolitical disruptive event it's nothing like syria 
nothing like Syria. Every populist movement, including Donald Trump's uh, uh, ascension to power, has to do with this refugee crisis that Syria uh, created. And guess what? That happened because we didn't do anything, yes. right? Yes. And do you think a civil war, an Iranian civil war, is going to be better than uh, than the one in Syria? No, it's going to be far bloodier. And uh, to begin with, Iran has a much larger population, and it has it is much more resourceful than uh, Syria. Just imagine uh, having having your access. Uh, to Iranian exports cut, which it still happens, not to the extent it used to. And it's going to be terrible on all fronts. And you're going to end up with the same problem on your hand, except that uh, far worse. And how are you going to ignore this? Um, what do you think the, apart from saying what you suggested, which I think is a very good message, what do you think the U.S. could be doing practically at this point? Well, uh, I mean, I would say that message should be put in practice. That's mm -hmm. how you, what you can do practically, which is uh, uh, communicate that message and uh, show the resolve that you're going to do it. Uh, on top of that, uh, if you really want to be naughty a little bit, uh, uh, you could uh, start smuggling goods into Iran that protesters can use. And yes. I'll give you, uh, 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 the regime is quite uh, uh, concerned about that. If you recall, a couple of weeks ago, there was a military uh, attack by Iran that uh, against Iraqi Kurdistan that killed yeah. one American citizen yeah, at least. Mm -hmm. And what, what, why did that happen? Mm, different explanations, but one that uh, I have almost no doubt about is that was a message to Iraqi Kurds that this border is very, very, very difficult to police on the Iranian side. Uh, you need to police it on your side or we're going to start attacking you. Stop the smuggling of goods into Iran. Now, that is a problem if Iran is going to attack Iraqi Kurdistan, but also Iranians are telling us what the vulnerability is that they have. Yeah. That, that is also telling us what they're scared of. So start smuggling some goods into Iran. I mean, uh, Starling modems are one of the things that uh, we're talking about smuggling into Iran, but also I would say arms, right? Uh, uh, not anything on mass scale. It doesn't need to be that one, just enough to... Make so a point the regime exactly to make a point to the regime that this is going. And to it happen. also seems the protesters could be, use American intelligence support. Oh, absolutely! I uh, well, they could use it. I don't know how much of it we have. That's the other problem. Uh, we, well, we certainly got satellite information that we can share. Uh, yes, but uh, I don't know. That's, excuse me. And signals intelligence. Uh, signal yes, SIGINT is very very useful. In fact, uh, one of the uses that we could have uh, of SIGINT is uh, embarrassing the regime, right? Okay. Uh, just, hey, uh, by the way, uh, Mr. Blah Blah, who is a senior person, uh, we, here are your exchanges with your girlfriend on the side. Yeah, exactly. Uh, does your wife know about this? Exactly. 
uh, and we can tell makes Mr. Y that we also have your girlfriend's name. <laughs> so there are things like this that we could do very much so and very mm -hmm. usefully. I don't know why we don't do it. You know, there is actually, there's, uh, there was a bill in US Congress proposed by a Republican congressman from New Hampshire twice in a row until that uh, Republican lost his reelection. And it was called the Iranian Leadership Assets uh, Disclosure Act, I believe, or Assets Transparency Act, mm -hmm. which is we know how much money you guys have and the State Department should disclose that. Never got a vote. Uh, in fact, actually, I think it passed the House once and never got a vote in the Senate. And I still don't understand why not. I don't know why not, why it didn't uh, go through. Uh, you know, there are ways we could embarrass the regime. And when I say embarrass the regime, I don't mean that they're going to go away just because they're ashamed, uh, as we have seen in American politics so over mm -hmm. the past few years, uh, shame has its limits. Yeah. And, uh, well, but it could create some pressure internally that yeah. disrupts the regime. And also again, like, you know, uh, we sometimes forget that people, politicians in America and abroad are people, are mm -hmm. humans. And they still, the Iranian general, the IRGC general is as scared of his wife as any man has ever been uh, because we are men and we are scared of women. And, you know, if you know some, that that general has a girlfriend, that's a very useful asset to use. Yes, if nothing else, it just ties down emotional energy and makes them- Yes, like, exactly. There is so much we can do. You know, ensuing chaos, uh, as, I, as I like to say, if you're, if you're uh, predicting anarchy to come, ensuing some chaos gives you at least control over it. In fact, that's something we can uh, learn from Vladimir Putin. He is used to be until uh, his foolish uh, military adventure. He was a master of creating chaos to control it. Mm -hmm. uh, there are ways that we can uh, do this. And as I say, if it comes down to the fact that if you are not going to assert control over the Iranian revolution, we are going to be controlled by the Iranian civil war. Yes, yes. I mean, getting involved in anything like this is a very unpredictable business and we might end up being controlled by the Iranian civil war anyway. But a, a posture of pure passivity no. just doesn't seem an intelligent one in any regard. No, and, and let, me, let me just say this. If you start uh, making meaningful investments mm -hmm. and creating useful connections, with the revolutionaries inside Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, even if it devolves to the civil war, at least we can control it better. We can control the civil war better if we know people on the ground, if we have created some trust re relationship that has some element of trust in it, uh, instead of waiting for the civil war to begin and then running around uh, with chickens without heads, uh, thinking what should we do now? How significant is it that we're seeing reports of strikes in the oil and gas sectors? Uh, <clears throat> it is 
it is significant uh, from a domestic point of view. It is because uh, if it goes for long, then that becomes a problem with for the regime that is already very poor and is denied even further revenue. There's another problem. Uh, one of the biggest consumers of Iranian oil is China. Right. And uh, then China will uh, have its own uh, energy consumption problems uh, at the time that it is having many other economic problems. And who knows how China reacts to that, right? Uh, there's all kind of problem with that angle uh, that we're not thinking about. Uh, again, the, going back to parking all the problems of the world to focus on China, uh, China's not parking the rest of the world. They have interest in Russia. They have interest in Iran. They have interest in all other Venezuela and Latin America, the rest of Latin America. Uh, Iran is a problem of its own, but also it's a problem through the China, China lens that we are apparently not considering. And to what extent is the instability in Pakistan apt to affect what's going on in Iran? I cannot give you an educated answer about that, except one thing, which is uh, there is a huge problem uh, for the regime with the Baluchis. Exactly. Uh, That's fact, what I was thinking of. Yes. And people in uh, southeast of Iran, mm -hmm. uh, there's a Baluchistan province in Iran and there's one in Pakistan and they share, they're divided by border. Uh, the Baluchis are a minority in Iran, religiously and ethnically. Right. They're Sunnis and they have been, ha they have had separatist elements very, very, very uh, violently cracked down on. Right. And, uh, and the most famous uh, and one of the very few uh, terrorist organizations inside Iran that has conducted terrorist activities, uh, the Rigi uh, network uh, named after Abdul Malik al-Rigi. He is, well, he's, he was executed, uh, but, uh, but, the, but that violent terrorism exists in that part. Right. Again, a border province uh, with Pakistan, a country that Iran like most countries, has a difficult relationship with. It's not, they're, they're quite actually, if you think about it, it's like our relationship with Pakistan, uh, that the Pakistanis have their cake and eat it uh, yeah. and succeed at it. Uh, same as uh, the relationship with Iran. Uh, and uh, again, you have a border that's difficult to enforce, not as difficult as the Kyrgyzstan border. Uh, arms that are smuggled through that border, uh, you are seeing a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, footages of really, really, really brutal, brutal. Like compared, you're seeing footages of brutal uh, uh, crackdown on random protesters in Iran, but in Baluchistan, it's even worse. Yeah. And uh, and partially because uh, the forces that are deployed there are 
or more or crueler because of that uh, problem that the regime anticipates. Right. And uh, I don't know if this has anything to do with the crisis that's going on in Pakistan or not. Uh, I don't know how that would affect it, but that border and that Baluchi uh, ethnicity uh, is a huge liability. Just like most uh, ethnicities in Iran are a liability for for the what regime. What percentage but- of the Iranian population is made up of ethnic minorities? And it's about 20% Kurd, is that right? Uh, it depends how you define ethnic minorities, really. But I guess uh, the regime. Self conceived. The regime's official uh, record is that Iran is, I think, 55 or 60% uh, Persian Shiite. Right. So that makes 40% minorities. And that that means that it's probably exaggerated. It might be that Iran is plurality, uh, ethnically Shiite Persian, though most Iranians are not Shiite anymore, uh, though they come from a Shiite heritage. They're like me. But uh, most of them, I probably most Iranians are not Persian Shiites. Most of them are ethnic minorities. And uh, Iran is just a very diverse society that no one ethnicity could dominate. But uh, actually, if you don't mind, let me make it make an important point. Go ahead. Uh, there was a boogeyman of separatism and secession used by the regime, uh, propagated by the regime to discourage people from protesting and overthrowing the regime. That the regime has its problems. It's kind of like Russia that uh, we're bad, but we also are the last guardian of Iranian territorial integrity. Mm -hmm. And Iranians, you know, used to be the largest country in the world a couple of millennia ago. uh, we have forgotten about that. The Iranians have not. They are very proud of that. Yeah. And they kept shrinking and they don't want to shrink anymore. Right. And that somewhat was successful, uh, that boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And one of the most wonderful things that you see in these protests is Persians rose up in defense of a Kurdish woman. Or, yeah. There has been uh, no talk of secession. Mm-hmm. All the chants have been ethnic unity in, na- in the name of Iran mm-hmm. against the oppressors. And that has given Iranian protesters a confidence that, okay, this secessionism is all crap. Nobody's going to secede. We can't have a revolution uh, without compromising Iran's uh, territorial integrity. Interesting. That's psychological uh, confidence. I think these protests are probably going to go away uh, at some point and come back, if not within a few months, in a year or so. Uh, And this psychological confidence uh, makes it even likelier that uh, we will see more and more protests because many people who would stay at home in the name of, uh, in, in fear of secession are going to be convinced. In fact, there is a, I wrote an article about celebrities that have spoken out of, spoken mm-hmm. out against uh, the regime for mm-hmm. the first time, and there is a uh, there is a singer who, as a kid, his name is Mohammad Esfahani. As a kid, uh, he 
uh, sang Quran uh, with a, there's a, uh, I don't know what the phrasing is, but uh, with a, a musical way of reading the Quran, mm -hmm. sang, uh, sang it in front of Khomeini when Khomeini arrived. Mm -hmm. And he has an almost heavenly way of singing. Right. It's extraordinary. And uh, I hate the regime. He, uh, one of his cousins, I think, was actually a minister at some point uh, in, an, in a cabinet. And he's, he's affiliated with the regime. I hate the regime. I still listen to him because it's just, he's irresistible. Right. He wrote. I'll, I'll include a clip. Uh, excuse me? What's his name? I'll include a clip. Mohammed Esfahani. I can oh, send yeah. it to you. Okay. And like the city. Uh -huh. And he posted on his Instagram that because of my age and uh, perhaps I'm more I'm wiser, age has wisened me and matured me up and blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to say anything because, but I'm very, because I'm very worried about secession. Uh, you know, it's going, going to be interesting to see how the regime could play the secession card uh, in the future when people are convinced now that there's not going to be talks of secession, there's one way to do it, which is feeling it, which is encouraging. Yeah. It. So you have an excuse, but that comes with other problems that uh, right. it has successful. unwanted consequences. Right, right. Um, the prominence of women in, in these protests. I don't know how much that's the Western media playing that up because we love stories about Iranian women rising up. Is this really being led by women? Uh, no, and Iranians, I don't think Iranians want it to uh, appear that way other than PR purposes, if right. that helps them, sure. Uh, right. the, the, uh, the slogan was woman life freedom. Mm -hmm. And they immediately added the second uh, verse to it, which is uh, man, homeland, prosperity. Right. And uh, which, by the way, is a, quite a traditional classical view of uh, genders that I, I really love, that there's a romanticism of women and a mm -hmm. materialistic view of man. Mm -hmm. And uh, so having said that, having said that, that this is very much the involvement of both, and you see heroic masculinity by Iranian men, uh, which is their images of men who uh, <clears throat> uh, have been seriously hurt trying to protect women mm -hmm. during the protests. Mm -hmm. But there is an important point to be made about the role of women in Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Iran holds two sets of, Iran has two main uh, university uh, systems. And around the same time, within a week, from each other, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, it holds an annual entrance exam into uh, for university mm -hmm. and it's uh, standardized for everyone. And if you screw up, wait until next year. Uh, I recall at, at points for, and this was, you have to study for it for a year. At points I studied 17 hours uh, a day. Most people are not crazy like I am and could settle for uh, lower schools. <laughs> Uh, but it's very competitive. Right. And if you fail twice, if you're a man, you're sent to uh, the military. Right. If you're a woman, you take it the third time, the fourth right. time. 
And when you come back from the military, it's very difficult to get back into studying. Uh, so you just give up. Which is to say, uh, Iranian women are more educated, mm -hmm. co more college educated. Mm -hmm. uh, even that, if you're not in the military, if you're in the military, you're going to do what military men do. And it's definitely not going to be involved uh, talking about uh, dissident politics within, uh, within the military base. Right. Your peers. Uh, if you're a woman, you're going to hang out with your friends. Right. You're going to a cafe. You're going to talk about these things. Right. Now, add to this that Iranian women are more oppressed than men. Yes. Uh, and add to this that when uh, you're more educated, but because of the regime orthodoxies, some societal orthodoxies, you're more oppressed, you're more educated, and you also cannot work right. as much as men can. Like it's, it's more accessible. Jobs are more accessible to men. And then the, there's the... The other problem, which is how the regime took care of this problem was, or how the problem took care of itself, I should say, was that, well, women get married and they have kids and they stay at home or have some part-time job uh, in addition to taking care of the husband and the kids. And that has gone away. Nobody's getting married. Nobody's having kids. Iran's fertility rate is 1.7, right. I think. Uh, so you have a bunch of women who are very qualified and cannot do anything. That pisses them uh, pisses uh, them off, of obviously. Course. And the regime has created the woman problem for itself. If you can, I can. If you want, I can send you a soft stack post I wrote about this. Uh, uh, and yeah, that becomes a huge liability for that has become a huge liability for the regime. That's uh, the. The, essentially the best and the brightest are the most oppressed. Uh, and they are more than half of the country, by the way. What percentage of Iranian women have had it with the regime? I mean, how many of them would take the headscarf off if they could? Uh, there is a polling agency in Amsterdam, mm -hmm. uh, Hague or Amsterdam, it's in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. uh, it's run by two Iranian political scientists mm -hmm. in exile. And uh, uh, I, th so the, if, uh, my numbers might be a bit off, but if I recall around 70 or 80% of, around 80% of uh, Iranian rejected compulsory hijab as a law. Right. And around 50, 60%, I think said that they personally don't believe in it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Islam, Sunni, and Shiite together, uh, I think around 40% of the respondents said that they practice it. Right. And uh, around 30% of Iranians are uh, Shiite Muslims, self-identified, mm -hmm. not by official accounts, mm -hmm. according to that poll. 30% Shiite Muslims, according, I mean, self-identified, and the yes, others yes. would come from, but a much larger number would come from that background. Yes. So right. that, that would be someone like me who right. uh, in Iran, you have to have an official religion. Right. Uh, right. And my official religion in Iran would be Shiite. And my actual religion would be uh, anything but Shiite. Right. Uh, and, uh, and that would be around 30% who identify as Shiite Muslims. But even then, even then, a substantive number of them a substantive percentage of them uh, 
doesn't believe in a theocracy. Right. They believe in uh, secularism and laissez-faire have different meanings to us than to Iranians. They understand it just as the separation of religion and state. Mm -hmm. And these are very popular uh, words in Iran. Uh, right. uh, and uh, even the religious ones don't want to do it, uh, don't want to imposed on others. You see, actually, one of the most interesting things for me, I, I uh, have a burner Instagram account uh, just to follow uh, regime people to mm -hmm. see what they are saying. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of condemning of the protests. There's a lot of strategic silence. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there is a a substantive amount of condemning the regime that uh, the people who have themselves ties with the regime uh, that you know I this is not real Islam this is not what the Imam by Imam they mean uh, Khomeini said this is not what it's supposed to be uh, like uh, there's no compulsion in Islam meaning that stop forcing women to wear hijab and these are women who observe hijab conservatively there right. is a book, I don't recall the name of it, but there's a book by uh, an Iranian who interviewed the daughters. The name of the book might be The Daughters of the Revolution, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken, but interviewed the daughters of uh, home seminary clerics. Right. To see what their value, a value system is and this is 10 years old around 10 years old these are pretty liberal women <laughs> these are pretty liberal women mm. and we're talking about the most conservative of the conservative right. of the society and you know uh, eventually as much as some of my fellow conservatives love to complain about uh hollywood's uh progressive agenda you know maybe it's bad for domestic Politics of America, we can have that discussion on a different uh, program, <laughs> or I'm really not qualified to have it ever. But as a tool of your soft power, it has been fantastically effective by making the alternative, the American system, very, very, very uh, uh, appealing to me. Seductive, yeah. It always, yeah. it always has been. It always has been. Um, yeah. What would happen if tomorrow every woman in Iran took the damn thing off? I mean, they can't kill them all. Well, it's not tomorrow. It's been happening for two weeks now that yeah, women I mean, all have taken it off. Uh, all of them? No, they, I mean, uh, you see that protesters on the streets are not wearing it. Uh, yeah, but I, I don't mean, know how widespread that is. I don't know whether that's... It's uh, quite widespread. Uh, and there were days, uh, there's an Iranian-American uh, Brooklyn-based journalist, a friend of mine, Masih Alinejad, that the regime has tried to abduct or kill many right. times. Yeah. Uh, and she could take uh, most of the credit for turning hijab resentment into a movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, she would, you know, she would have uh, this uh, white Wednesdays uh, calls that women in Iran just don't wear your hijab uh, during a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And it was, well, it, nobody was really being arrested. I 
like maybe anecdotally, not nobody, but anecdotally, my mom went out a few times without it and nothing came out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing happened to, to her, but then Raisi came to power and started cracking down on women right. uh, who were not uh, observing her job properly. And, uh, and if they all took it off, I don't know what would happen. I really don't know. No, they cannot kill all of them, although if they had to, they would. They cannot arrest all of them. Uh, there is also a problem that their own daughters might take them off. I think the problem is, uh, in theory, that would be great. Let's see what ha- comes out of it. In practice, how are you going to create that? The collective action problem that yeah, you see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, all right. Give me. I want to go through two scenarios from here. What's the best way it could go that in, in reasonably plausible, and what's the worst <clears throat> way? The best way is what I said. Which is uh, convincing the regime, giving them the message that we will assure that the civil war is concluded uh, with the vict- uh, victory of the people. Sending that them that message is one thing; convincing them of it is another. I think the best case scenario is to convince them of it, and then. Uh, let them take as much money as they can uh, to leave, go to Venezuela or Russia or wherever would have them, although personally I wouldn't go to Russia. How many of them Uh, would have to leave in order for it to be, um, I mean, how many people have to get out of there with their money in order for a new political system to arise? A a couple of hundred with their families, at their families too, uh, would have to leave. So unreasonable, I mean, that that could be done. Yeah, no, it could be done. And you just need to take out, even maybe fewer than that. I uh, just need to take out just pretty much uh, uh, security agency principals and their families right. and uh, and their deputies, I guess. Uh, but the problem occurs with what are you going to do in the meantime? Mm-hmm. And what are you going to do in the meantime? Who's going to, there is a problem that the protests don't have leadership domestically and outside Iran, uh, there's only the former crown prince who uh, is going to be a hard sell, not to the people actually, the people like him quite a lot. It's going to be a hard sell uh, to the Americans, I think, because they don't want to appear as though they are uh, picking a successor to be the king right. again. Right. Could be help with the fact that the guy doesn't want to be the king. He's on the record saying that he prefers yeah. a republic. And if we are going to have a republic in Iran, he's the perfect person to uh, come in, say, I'm the director, the president of the transitional authority or uh, yeah. provisional authority, and then I'll go away. Could be done like that. Uh, uh, but it's going to be quite messy. There's no civil society in Iran. That's the next question I was going to ask, whether, there, yeah. whether there's any basis for constructing a more liberal society. Uh, ideologically on the value system, I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are, uh, Iranians are quite liberal. Uh, I, uh, they, they, and I don't mean just uh, socially liberal. I mean that uh, they 
say that they want a private market. They say that uh, they want better relations with the uh, with the free world. Uh, they hate Russia and China. They want better relations with the free world, by the way, but they really hate the Europeans because they see Europeans complicit in uh, keeping the regime in power. Right. Uh, so no, it, it, uh, the, there is that the mindset is there. The problem is that uh, uh, you come to the practical problem, which is uh, what are you going to do with the IRGC? It's going to be very difficult to uh, uh, integrate it with the regular military. Right. Uh, and uh, it's going to be very difficult to keep them uh, where they are because Iran doesn't have much money and it's not going to have much money for a few years after the regime changes. But you can't and, just dissolve it. We learned that with the Ba'ath regime. Yep, exactly. I was going to say that. You cannot just dissolve it either. So, you know, ideally, you, I would suggest that I'm only half joking, send them to Ukraine to fight. Uh, but that, that would take care of quite a few problems, including that it helps Ukraine and it also prevents a coup by the IRGC. Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen uh, as brilliant an idea as that might be. Uh, it's going to be difficult to figure this out. And, it's, and on, on the other side, uh, as for the civil society, okay, let's say there are elections in Iran held, who's going to be the candidate? There, there's no leader. In right. Iran, right, because nobody has uh, raised their hands saying, hey, let me fix something, uh, because every time someone does that, that person is persecuted. There is Iran's probably the most, the greatest soccer player in Iran, Ali Dai. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he tried to organize a charity. I'm not kidding. It was charity, a lot of it his own money, raised more money for uh, victims of an earthquake in Iran yeah. uh, because the regime was not doing anything about it. And he was charged with a crime for organizing a charity. Yeah. Uh, he can't defend himself. Uh, he's rich and famous and somewhat invincible, uh, invincible for the regime to touch. Most people are not like that. You will right. be charged for problems and you will be put in prison. Nobody's right. There are no community leaders in Iran. It's going to be very difficult. Who's going to the places? Now, the best answer is that, you know what? Uh, democracy has a way of taking care of things on its own. Just let idiots come, win, and go. Uh, uh, American Republicans survived uh, despite electing idiots for 250 years now. Uh, I think Iranians could do that too. It just needs a lot of uh, American uh, uh hand-holding, I guess. I mean, there is some tradition of democracy. There's local elections for which people run and... and... Yes, there is. And uh, people generally don't see uh, local, uh, localities, I guess, uh, city councils as much affiliated with the regime. Uh, the bigger problem, actually, that I'm quite concerned about is all the diaspora going back to Iran trying to uh, take charge of things because uh, uh, there are many reasons that I don't think that's a good idea. And uh, I don't want them to hate me more than they already do. Uh, so I won't get into them. But uh, it's not a many of the uh, there are many people inside the 
anti-regime diaspora in Iran who are not very responsible and uh, and cannot be trusted with power in my judgment. And, uh, and also they are a bit ahead of the rest of the society too, in terms of uh, social values and trying to impose that uh, coming from Washington DC and New York and uh, bringing those values into Iran, which is social liberal, but uh, most of America is not as progressive as uh, Brooklyn and Washington DC. Right, right. Uh, that could create all sorts of problems. And I fear that that's going to, that's what They would be get. an important source of technocratic expertise. Uh, yes, and, Maybe because you say technocratic, my mind immediately goes to the fact that most Iranians outside Iran are engineers and doctors and bankers, right? Uh, which is not exactly, uh, which don't give you transferable uh, skills into politics. Right. Uh, most Iranians here are not political experts and uh, are not historians of Iran and right. or just any, uh, they are not political scientists. Uh, one of, uh, uh, if I may throw my own hat in the ring, uh, <laughs> one of the few people who actually, like, uh, one of very few people, th there are some people who uh, have studied and practiced politics seriously. Like myself, my friend Ali Nader, Ali Reza Nader, there are others like that. And most of us who are like that for some reason, myself included, have no desire to go back to Iran. We want a free Iran, but we don't want to. I see myself as an American. I uh, look at this country as a country that I have family and friends with, and obviously have some uh, history with and want the best for, but also I look at it mostly through the US interest lens. Mm. I uh, this, is a, this is an American problem for me more than it is an Iranian problem that I'm uh, looking at. And most people who are political in the United States are like me. Right. Um, all right, so talk about the worst case scenario. Oh, Syria on steroids. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I don't have much to add to that. Um, what do you think is the likelihood that they successfully just crush the protests? Uh, they probably will, but the protests will come back worse. And this is going to be a push and pull for a while, and uh, the violence will escalate until probably not this time, perhaps this time, but probably not. Give it two or three more rounds of these uh, five years from now at most. I think that uh, you will have uh, security forces uh, opening armories to the people. And uh, if you see there are uh, videos, pictures, uh, and from these protests, but also from over the past several years of uh, random uh, officers, some in the IRGC, mostly in the Artish, uh, sending out messages and they usually put their uh, uh, uniforms and guns on, on the ground, on the floor and take a picture of it to prove that we are actually in the security forces. Uh, sending out messages that uh, we have sworn an oath to defend Iran from against enemies uh, uh, within and without, and the, the enemies within. So we are going to defend Iran and Iranians against the, the enemy within. So 
we have maybe anecdotal evidence, but we have evidence that this is a possibility. And I would say that the more we wait, it becomes more of a probability and an inevitability. Um, so what should people who are trying to make sense of this be looking for um, in weeks and months to come? What kind of news would be particularly significant? Uh, I don't think that I can cite one single uh, datum as something that would be a significant news uh, a prediction, uh, mostly because I'm like most people in Washington scared of making prediction to be proven wrong and be called an idiot uh, in a few weeks. Uh, I told you I've become an American, but I think the, the, the data we should be looking for and tracking is, uh, again, I, I keep emphasizing this point and I'm sorry to repeat it. Uh, we should be looking for the reaction of security forces. Uh, how how uh, energized are there in cracking down uh, the protests? Uh, how much sympathies are they expressing on social media and on the streets and however we can track it uh, with the people? Didn't the justice uh, minister just say something about wanting to have dialogue with the protesters? Uh, yes, they... They, they they have said that, but they keep saying these things every single time that something happens. They just uh, throw everything at the wall to see what sticks and yeah, right. usually nothing sticks other than uh, suppression. This is not a significant thing for him to have said. Right. Right. But, uh, but also, okay, you want to have dialogue with the protesters. Uh, there are many problems with that. Uh, one is that the protesters don't have a leader. Uh, it's second problem is that uh, how are you going to have the dialogue? Are you going to invite like 500 random people, 50 mm. random people, just invite everybody to show up? Is anybody going to show up to speak with you? They want to kill you. And right. they are afraid that if they show up, they're arrested on spot. Like, right. how right. are you going to have dialogue? <laughs> uh, but it shows that comment and other comments like that show a vulnerability that the regime faces that again, they're throwing everything to see what sticks. I am surprised, I should say, that there has not been a crackdown as violently as I expected. Uh, in a weird way, you could say that 2019 uh, crackdown was more violent. Mm -hmm. uh, you saw a couple of footages of helicopters. The, 2000, the, the 2009 protein? Uh, 19, 19. 90, right. Uh, so I, I, you saw that three years ago. Uh, Helicopters were flying over the streets, randomly shooting at people. I haven't seen anything like that. Maybe there has been some. Uh, they completely disconnected the internet that time. They haven't this time. Uh, part of the reason I've heard is that the economic uh, problems it caused was so devastating that uh, were so devastating that they really don't want to repeat that. Yeah. Uh, but I'm quite intrigued by why they haven't been doing it more than they have already. And part of the explanation could be that they, uh, uh, they don't want to escalate it. They mm -hmm. are just, they just want to wait it out maybe. Mm -hmm. And if they escalate it, uh, 
they could put it to bed for it to come back, or they uh, they could risk losing uh, ambivalent people mm-hmm. within their own uh, ranks. Right. That would become another uh, liability if, the, again, uh, how many women can you kill before uh, some colonel say, I've had it, I'm out? It does make things psychologically much more interesting that it involves killing women because there's such a taboo against that. So the, I wish I could have just a list of things that they, the regime has said about women because they need to compensate for oppressing women. Mm-hmm. And over the years they have said, oh, women walk over heaven uh, or uh, like, the most important task of a society is motherhood, the most important job, which I'm not saying it is not, but it is funny how some of these uh, sayings could resemble Nazism. Uh, and not, not, not saying that the regime is as bad as the Nazis. Uh, I, I get what you mean, don't worry. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I know what, I know you know, I just need to, <laughs> you always need to add this caveat, always. <laughs> but uh so actually, I, I probably would say that other than Jews, uh, internally, probably Iranians, uh, uh, they definitely, I mean, most Germans were uh, willful, uh, willfully complicit in uh, Nazism and liked Hitler quite a bit. That's because Hitler was terrible to Jews, obviously, but for uh, Gentile Germans, it was not as bad. Uh, uh, but... Uh, Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm walking on. Uh, uh, I'm it on doesn't help here. that, that uh, <laughs> the regime in Iran has run the economy to the ground the way it has. Yes, I mean that's a huge problem, but also like social liberties, right? right. Uh, uh, Hitler came and uh, by accident or by genius or however, uh, somewhat rescued a terrible, terrible, terrible German economy mm-hmm. of the Weimar Republic. Uh, the regime does not have that track record. Uh, so anyway, uh, without getting too much into Hitlerism and Nazism, uh, the, the, the things that they have said about women, that we are here to protect women. Motherhood is the most important uh, job in a society. Women, 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 more precious than men, more important than men. You wear hijab because uh, like, it's to protect women. It's not to limit women. Right. Uh, all these things, uh, we're really a guardian of women here. That's why we're enforcing hijabs. Like, we don't care about men. That's why they don't have to wear hijab, blah, 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 blah. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So you've said these things and many people within your own ranks, your supporters, your base, have believed it. Right. And now you're going to say that, oh, just kidding, we're going to kill a lot of them. That becomes a problem. Yeah, it, it does seem to me it would be. Uh, yeah, and uh, the there are many men killed in the protests, but uh, you only know the name of the women who have right. been killed. Right. And again, I mentioned this is not, this is both, a women's movement and not at all a women's movement mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Uh, but the public relations campaign of it has emphasized the role of women because- Which is very intelligent. 
yeah, because they know that this is a vulnerability. Uh, it's uh, men are warriors and women are precious, right. and you're killing the precious, not the warriors. Right. right. Uh, so again, also I, I should ask, uh, excuse me, add that these paradoxes, many paradoxes. I- Iran is a society of contradictions and paradoxes, and I started with saying that uh, they have added the second verse of man, homeland, prosperity to, to right. the slogan of the protest, mm-hmm. but also they are still emphasizing women in the protest. It, it, these paradoxes also exist in, in this movement and that's not a bad thing. I think that's going to help them. All right, well, this is really, really interesting conversation. A lot of this had not occurred to me and it's, I wish we, I wish there was enough energy left from thinking about Ukraine that we could be devoting a little bit of thought to this as well, because it could really use the, I hate the phrase international community, but it could use the world's attention and the world's thought. I, I was telling a friend of mine who's an Asia expert that, hey, you guys thought that you're going to have, finally have your moment, right? <laughs> Yeah. How is it going for you? <laughs> <laughs> you thought that Pelosi went to Taiwan. Finally, I get all the interviews. <laughs> but uh, that's to say that, uh, you know, uh, there's a shortened version of uh, what uh, Moltke said, that plans don't survive the first contact with the enemy. Yep. Or as we like to say, the enemy gets a vote too. You can come to power wanting to do great power competition with China, but uh, Russia and Iran have other plans for you. And yeah, that's not to yeah. say that we should be distracted from China. I think that uh, I am... A little bit more walking and chewing gum at the same time. Yeah, I am a maximalist. There are many enemies I, I want to fight at the same time, and we should be doing that. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, they're all connected. One goes down and it's a terrible demoralization for the rest of them. Oh, absolutely. And... Uh, I mentioned one connection between Iran and China, and uh, another one to mention is that Iran is sending drones to Russia to Absolutely. kill the Ukrainians with. Another one to mention is that Iran just had a 25-year uh, security agreement with China that might be, we don't know what's in it, there might be an agreement to rent a port or an island in the Persian Gulf to the Chinese uh, to for naval purposes, naval military purposes. Like, you know, that's not a good thing. <laughs> there is a connection there for you. Of there uh, right. Of course there is. Can you imagine how nervous Assad is right now? I mean, possibly uh, both of his patrons. Uh, it's, I, I cannot think of Syria without just feeling absolute rage. Uh, but I remember uh, in 2011, I was still in Iran in the early stages of the Syrian revolution that became the Syrian civil war. Yeah. And Iranians were very invested in it, very invested. They were not as invested in the Green Loop, uh, excuse me, in the Arab Spring as uh, in the rest of it, as they were in Syria, because they understood the connection. And like some people were saying that, oh, if Syria collapses, then we could uh, push out the regime. Uh, I never understood the connection and I don't think, or rather uh, the logic, I don't think there was a logic because Iran is the patron of Syria, not the other way around. And I really wanted 
Assad to go, but uh, it might actually be that Iran has to go and Putin might go soon and then we can get rid of Assad. And uh, I don't think we can do him justice in this world for what he has yeah. done, but uh, yeah. something, yeah, at least do right by the Syrians. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, this is a super interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Sorry, I talked too much. No, what, what do you mean? I invited you to talk. That was what you're supposed to do. <laughs> no, it's really interesting. I'm going to put the conversation up right away. I'm not even going to edit it or listen to it. I think okay. it's interesting. Um, Sounds good to me. And people can find your work at The Bulwark anywhere else? Uh, the Bulwark, mostly. I have a soft stack, which is shaykatiri, my name, .substack.com. Uh, you can look up Russia Iran file on Substack. That's the name of it. Russia Iran yeah. file on Substack. I didn't yes. know that. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll subscribe. Thank you. And, and you can also find me on uh, Twitter at Shaykhetiri, my name, which uh, there's a lot of politics and foreign policy, but there, I, there, there's a lot of soccer going on there too, and occasionally uh, uh, Green Bay Packers. Right, Green Revolution to Green Bay Packers. It's a seamless transition. Yes, uh, though it's... It's not because of the green, it's because, as I like to say, I used to be an atheist until I saw uh, Aaron Rodgers uh, perform a miracle every uh, Sunday, and I be became, I, I now, I tr uh, in Aaron Rodgers, I trust. <laughs> okay, um, well, <laughs> we'll sign off there, and um, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about this again in a few weeks, let's see how things are shaping up, okay? Sounds fantastic to me. Thank you so All much right. for having me on, Claire. Great to meet you at last. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.